0: Okay, so Yom Kippur is, or Yom Hakippurim is the day of atonement, or the day of atonements in the plural. Um, what is atonement? So yesterday we spoke about the day of atonement is the removal of sin, right? Come to life, washing away the sin, right? So Yom Kippur is a day of washing, washing away the sin, right? When I was in high school, I had a teacher, and um, I told the teacher I was going to be off on Yom Kippur, and the teacher said, "What's Yom Kippur?" And I said, it's a day where we fast and God forgives us for our sins. And then the teacher said, when do you eat? And I said, um, it's a fast day, we don't eat. He said, no, 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 no. You always are eating. Jews are always eating with their holidays. I said, well, we do have two festive meals the day before and a festive meal the night after. He said, see, see, see. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but yeah, we don't eat. And God says, all your sins are gone. That's, that's, that's that Yom Kippur in a nutshell. Um, I want to tell a cute Yom Kippur story, which is important. There was once a Jew there's different versions of the story it 's one of these stories that 's most likely true and happened, but I cannot tell you like exactly where it happened i've heard versions you know it's somewhere in Israel The, the story goes there's a, there's a Jew and he 's in Israel and he um, goes out during the break because the, the Davidingham people are quite long and um, there 's a break. Sometimes the break is long enough to go home and take a nap. sometimes the break is long enough to like you know go out and schmooze for like fifteen twenty 20 minutes. depends on the show. but there should be a break. He goes out the break and he sees on the other side of the street. On this bench, two guys think of these big sandwiches. Like, these like big, like, you know, like Subway kind of sandwiches. And this is Israel, so, like, everybody's Jewish. They're clearly Jewish. And he's thinking, what would you be thinking? It's Yom Kippur, afternoon. Like, there's only, like, you know, like, What's the chutzpah? like, like, like you want to eat, you don't want to keep your kid, you have to do it, like, in the street, right opposite of that, the show. And he's like, you know, he's building this whole narrative of these chutzpah, this chutzpah, these chutzpah. Anyway. He he, he, um, he starts pacing around. He's just thinking. He's looking at them. And at a certain point, he gets close enough to them that like there's enough of a social contact. And one of them says in Hebrew, Akhi, My brother, when is the fast finish? <laughs> 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 We're not eating. We're, they're ready to go. I right? go to show them. So it's an important aspect of Yom Kippur, right? You, we don't always know what's going on inside other people. And to a certain degree, we don't know what's going on inside of ourselves. And it's a, I think it's a... Acute and important Yom Kippur story before we get to the actual chasidus. <laughs> okay. Now, Yom Kippur is the day of cleansing away the sin. The mitzvah, the thing that is most important, is the fasting. Um, and it is unequivocal that if one does not observe Yom Kippur, meaning one violates Yom Kippur by eating or doing any of the other forbidden activities on Yom Kippur, then Yom Kippur does not work for you. Yeah. So, yeah. in other words, in order to get Yom Kippur to work, you need to observe Yom Kippur, which means but not eating, not drinking, and a few other things. But, okay. Now, unless your life is in danger, and then, luckily, you're required to eat. And then you still get atonement, because then you're keeping Yom Kippur. So, what I want to do is I want to split the class into two parts. Now, because we only have an hour for Yom Kippur, um, it's very important that we keep track of like not getting too sidetracked. What I want to do, the first part of the class, is talk about Yom Kippur as it's ideally supposed to be. And the second part of Yom Kippur is I want to talk about what we have left from Yom Kippur. Because we have like a kind of handicapped version of Yom Kippur. Okay? And what I want you to see is there's actually two different notions of cleansing away the sin. Okay? One that we no longer have available, and one we still have available. Okay. Okay, on Yom Kippur, which is the holiest day of the year. Okay, how do we know it's the holiest day of the year? Here's the simple rule: holiness is associated with restriction. Judaism: the holier something is, the more restrictive it is. A holier day, the Mm. Less less you can do. Simple rule. Okay, goes into the holiest place. How do you know it's the holiest place? It's the most restrictive. What is the holiest place? the Holy of Holies within the temple. And that is a room It's about 30 plus feet by 30 plus feet that had the Ark of the Covenant in it in the first temple and was just empty in the second temple. Okay. And who goes into that room? The holiest man, the holiest person. Who is the holiest person? The high priest. Now, does that mean he's the most righteous person? No. How do we know he's the holiest person? He has the most restricted life. There are many, many things that he cannot do that other people are allowed to do. One simple example, he is not allowed to actually attend a funeral or go into a cemetery ever for any purpose, even for his own relatives. Okay? Very restrictive life. Okay, and that is the only time when that happens. So the Kippur, the holiest day, the holiest person goes in the holiest room. And through doing the rituals associated with that, brings about the atonement. I want to say that again. The, the, the rituals that the Kohen God, or the high priest, does in the temple on that day is what brings about the atonement, that brings about the cleansing of the sins. So if you don't have a high priest and you don't have a temple and he's not doing any of these rituals, what happens to that atonement? It doesn't happen. Okay? In fact, a large part of the prayers on Yom Kippur are descriptions and actually some reenactments, which I'll talk about in a second, of the Kohen Goggle of the high priest's service in the temple. And after we go through the whole thing, we then lament that we no longer have this and um, how sorry our state is. Okay? So if you take a, a Mahz or the prayer book for Yom Kippur and you look in the English or Hebrew, if your Hebrew is good, um, you'll see that there's like a good chunk just devoted to that. Okay? Now, I'm not going to go through all of the rituals that would take probably more than the class. I'm just going to focus on um, two core rituals to kind of get a sense of what's going on. Okay? And again, maybe the trigger warning about animals and people have issues with using animals. Okay. One of the things that the Kohen Godel, the high priest, would do is they would take two goats. These goats were ideally supposed to be of equal value, the same height, the same color, more or less, not like identical twins, but more or less the same. And he would have two, um, like tab, like like, like 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 tablets, you know, pieces of uh, of solid material. That, you know, they were plated in gold, and one had the word for God on it, La Hashem, and the other one had the word La Azazel for Azazel. Azazel is a um, area south of Jerusalem with very steep cliffs, and it would be put in a box, and the Kohen Gadol would stick his hands in. They would shake it up and stick his hands in. And then the assistant would say, my beloved high priest, raise your right hand. He'd raise his right hand and everyone hoped that the right hand had the one that said, for Hashem. If it had the right hand the one for Hashem and the left hand for had for Azazel, that was a good sign. That was a sign that God was, was playing along with this whole thing. If it was reversed, not a good sign. Okay? Then what, what did he do? He would take, he would go to the goat for Azazel and he would rest his hands on its head, kind of literally lean down, and he would confess the sins of the entire Jewish people. So who does the confession of the sins on Yom Kippur? The Kohen Godel. Who is he confessing on behalf of? Of, of everyone. Okay? Then they would take a red fleece and they would take part of it and wrap it around the, the horns of the goat. And then the person was designated for this purpose would take the goat to the Azazel cliffs, on Yom Kippur during the day, that very day, the other half of the fleece would um, would hang on the in the temple um, compound, and then the man would take the goat and push it backwards off the cliff. And as the tradition is that the cliffs were very steep and very sharp, that the goat would be dismembered before it hit the bottom, and say such such shall be done to the sins of of your people Israel. And if God had um, agreed then the red fleece would turn white not just the one that was there but also the other half at the temple and then everyone know that god was um, cool with the, getting rid of the sins and that's the original scapegoat by the way that's where the term scapegoat comes from cuz you literally like take all your sins you his problem now the other goat was then be offered as a special offering and slaughtered, and the blood would be brought into the Holy of Holies. There's more rituals there. There's incense. We're going to talk about the incense actually when we talk about Sukkot. Um, the incense brought in it, the, and there was, there was other blood. And w- one of the main rituals that the Kohen Gadda would do is he would dip his finger into the blood and he would sprinkle it on the space between the two cherubs on the Ark of the Covenant. Um, and in the second temple, where that would have been if they had an ark, but they didn't have the ark. And he would do a very special ritual. And we actually make a big deal of this in the Yom Kippur service. Um, he would dip his finger in, and then the first time he would sprinkle it, he would take his finger and go like this, finger kind of upwards. And he would say, one, in he would so go like this, achas. And then he would wipe off his finger and dip it again in the blood, and he would go this way. But he'd flip down, and he would say, one. For, and, but then count the next one. So he'd say, achas, achas. Then you wipe the finger, do it again, and do again down a second time. So you say, Achas, one, Veshtayim, and two. And you'll see in your Kippur service, like a big thing, the chasm goes, Achas, and goes, Achas! Nobody knows what we're doing. That's what we're talking about. Okay? If anyone has ever been to Shul and Yom Kippur and wondered what that was, that's what that's about. Um, and he would do that with the blood of the goat. There's also blood of a bull, and then they, they mix the blood together, he does it again. Okay. Um, and the way this is understood in Hasidus, Um is that the, the one... Because from above is like God's infinite compassion of His of His being, and the seven is the seven attributes that He relates to the world, and that's where our sins have had a negative effect. The idea is to draw that oneness and compassion into His relationship with the Jewish people. So there's one above, seven below. I'm not going to so much into this. What's what's really going on with this is as follows. There in is in Jewish law, in halacha, a conceptual difference which is important to appreciate. Which is a difference between the person and the object. Okay? Do you have a mitzvah to put a mezuzah on the doorposts of your house? No. You do not have such a mitzvah. The house must have mezuzahs. Who is responsible to make sure that the house has mezuzahs? The person living there. Okay. But the the actual obligation is not an obligation on you. It's an obligation on the house. And the question is, okay, now who's responsible to make sure that happens? Okay. Matzah on Pesach. Do you have an obligation to eat matzah? Yes, there's no obligation for the matzah to be eaten. There's an obligation to, right? Okay, now this is important because if there's an obligation to eat the matzah, I have to eat the matzah. Can you eat matzah for me? But if there's an obligation for the matzah to be eaten, then it raises a question, maybe you could eat the matzah for me, right? So there's a difference between things that, it's a very fundamental legal distinction. In practice, you have to do stuff, right? But Aries saying you have to do this because you have to do it, pertains to you or this has to be done and the question is who's responsible for it. And that leads to all sorts of differences in halacha which we're not going to go into right now. I'm just going to mention one interesting one. Um, When you... We all have an obligation to make kiddush. So how come at a Shabbos meal very often it's just one person makes kiddush? Right, but we're fulfilling our obligation through there. How does that work? The idea is that in mitzvahs that involve speaking, when you hear someone speaking the mitzvah and they're having you in mind to fill both your allegations together, it's as if you did it. Okay, so how come you don't have to, um, how come you don't have to have your own cup of wine? Because there's no mitzvah to hold a cup of wine. The mitzvah is that the recital of kiddush has to be done over a cup of wine. In other words, do you have an obligation to have a cup of wine when you make Kiddush? Mm-hmm. No, you have an obligation to recite Kiddush. But the recital of Kiddush requires that a cup of wine be held. By who? By the person reciting it. But you're not the one reciting it. The other person reciting it, so you don't have to do it. And now, what about drinking it? So there's a bit of a debate, but, but the, know, on a basic halacha, la, basic halacha level, what it, do you have to, if you make Kiddush, do you have to drink the wine? Mm-hmm. No. No? No. Well, then no, that, that's, on the, that, the, 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 that's the blessing on the wine, but the blessing of, the, of, of sanctifying the day. You don't, have to make a, you don't have to drink it. But you know what? There's an obli- the, the cup has to be drunk. So now the question is, is not, you have an, I have no mitzvah to drink this cup, but the cup needs to be drunk. Now the question is, who's responsible for drinking it? And this leads to the interesting question, well, if the cup needs to be drunk, who says I'm the one that has to drink it? Maybe I can make kiddush and give it to someone else to drink. So this becomes a very important issue. I'm not going to all the areas where this shows up. But in terms of our purposes, there's two ways you can conceive of cleaning away sin. The sins could go away, or you could go away from the sins. You no, know, it's, are the sins as an entity disappearing, or the sins just have nothing to do with you anymore? Is it a change in the sin, or is it a change in the person? Now, as I describe that ritual with the goat, of the two goats, yeah? What does it sound like is happening there? The sins, can go
1: away.
0: the sins go away. In fact, one of, the result, one of the consequences of this is that the halacha is that minor sins go away even if you never do tshuva. If we have that ritual of the Kohen Gadol and God accepts the ritual, then guess what happens? All of your minor sins, as far as God's concerned, just erases them. They never occurred. Now what are minor sins? These are sins that are either not fulfilling a positive commandment or violating a negative commandment that doesn't involve the death penalty or having one's soul cut off. So this would be eating non-kosher food, not lighting Shabbos candles, um, all those kinds of sins. If it involves hurting another person, it's a different thing because you have to make amends to the other person. Okay? But if you have the scapegoat, then all those sins go on the goat, go off the cliff, And they are no more, just like the goat is no more. What about more serious sins? If you do tshuva, then God will put those sins on the goat also. And so now, what's left of your sins, assuming you do tshuva? Nothing. They're gone. Now, that sounds like a pretty good deal, yeah? Yeah. Do we have that? No. So, are sins really going away on Yom Kippur? Our sins aren't going away. What's supposed to happen? We go away from the sins. And that's going to be, on the one hand, have a certain beautiful depth to it. On the other hand, it's also going to be much more difficult. Okay? So, again, the real ideal Yom Kippur is that God actually takes the sins and just takes them out of existence through this ritual. And we don't have the ritual, we don't have the koin, we don't have the, the temple, we don't have the goats actually one of the poems we say and the thing is after things, we don't have this and we don't have it. we just list all the stuff we don't have. Okay. Does it make sense? Questions yeah. on this? Quick question. And then I want to add one other point point. then we're going to move on to what Yom Kippur does nowadays when we don't have a temple. Hopefully this Yom Kippur will have a temple so we won't have to worry about this.
1: So this ritual is not something we can replace by just speaking it. And why is that? Because I know there's some things that we were, like the sacrifices, like the Mesopotamia thing, we can kind of emulate it in a way because we can
0: emulate things that have to do with our relationship with Hashem but not the objective reality of things that's the idea in other words there is an element of how things facilitate our relationship with God but in those you have to think of a sin as an actual thing that exists I'll illustrate this in a way that's a little bit easier to understand and then I'll illustrate it in a way that, that's more accurate but harder to understand, okay? Has um, anyone ever r- r- um, read the book Fahrenheit 451?
1: Yes. Thanks.
0: So the theme of that book is that people have decided in society that, that knowledge is bad and we want to get rid of knowledge, so they get rid of books, right? And the idea is that firefighters, instead of um, fighting fires, they just... Actually, it doesn't work so well if you call them firefighters, but it's... Right, right. They, they would call them firemen, which doesn't work anymore because now firefighters. But it worked back then when they were called firemen, so you could read that two ways, right? Men who fight fires or, or men who cause fires, but they go and the start fires and burn the books. Now, what's the thing when you try to burn books? What ends up happening? You burn books. That's what happens. But, but the ideas of the books don't burn, do they? And as long as one person has read the book and he's still alive and remembers the book, is the thing you're trying to get it rid of still there. Yeah. Yeah. So if you really want to get rid of books, what do you end up having to get rid of? And which people? All the people who've ever come into contact with that, right? So in other words, the the idea, which is the thing you want to get rid of, actually exists far beyond the physical book, right? Okay. Sins exist beyond the physical act that you did, which is in the past. There's something there that actually exists, like the idea from the book. And um, what's the magic of this ritual? Is that God, what does he do? just plucks it out of existence, okay? Um, and that's an objective thing that occurs, not something about how God feels towards us or we feel towards him, okay? The other thing, now I'll go more, more accurately. When you sin, the sin is not a, is not a um, the sin is not a dormant object. The sin is a living thing. Sins are alive. How alive are the sins? Do you want to know the truth? The sins are as alive as you were when you did them. So when you do a sin with more enthusiasm, more enjoyment, more conviction, then that sin is much more vigorous. And here's the thing: living things. What do living things? What are some of the signs of living things? don't, don't think it's not a physical thing, but like angels are living; they're not physical. What's the sign of a living thing? What's the difference between a dog and a rock? They're both alive. Otherwise, one's alive, one's not. They're both physical.
1: It has control. It can adapt.
0: Yeah. Living things have aims that they pursue. Right? The dog aims, right? The dog would like to live. So, therefore, the dog avoids danger, pursues food. The dog would like to perpetuate its species. Therefore, the dog finds... Other dogs to reproduce with, right? Rocks just, just kind of passively stay there, right? So if sins are living beings, then what does that mean? The sins that we've committed have
1: aims, aims.
0: goals. Uh huh. And, you know, those goals might be like getting stronger, right? Reproducing, Whoa. right? Not be put in danger. Well, do you know where the sins get things to feed off of? The holiness inside of us. Do you know what dangers what puts the sin in danger? Our sincere return to God. Do you know how the sin reproduces itself? By convincing us to
1: do it again.
0: So, guess what happens when you sin. The sin follows you around, and tries to discourage you from returning to God, It tries to discourage you from praying, It tries to discourage you from being sincere, and tries to encourage you to do other sins, okay? You'll notice that in the Psalms it speaks a lot of, King David always speaks about his enemies who are coming to, to destroy him and attack him, and many of those Psalms make their way into our prayers. Like, I don't know about you, I don't have that many enemies. Like, really, like, I happen to have, like, one neighbor who really doesn't like me, and I think that's probably about it. Actually, I don't know if he so much doesn't like me, and she doesn't like us, and, like, you know, when it Yeah, you know, he's, like, on her side. But whatever, I don't know, like, whatever. But, like, that's about it. I'm thinking, like, I mean, how many people, like, really deeply, maybe, maybe I've offended someone I don't know yeah, about. that
1: you're aware of, at least. I mean, that I'm
0: aware of. I can think of maybe two people on earth that really, really wish me ill. So why am I praying God to this my enemies' enemies? The, the enemies are the enemies of our own making. And I don't mean that in a metaphoric sense, because also in quite a literal sense. When we sin, the sins are living entities, and, and they, want to, they want to keep us there.
1: Mm.
0: Or I like to call them demonic hellspawn.
1: Demonic what? Hellspawn. Hell, Hel- hellspawn. Hellspawn. They come hellspun. from hell. Oh, oh okay, yeah.
0: okay, And And um, yeah, and they torment us. And that's, if, you ever, if you ever noticed that when you really try to like... Um, pray sincerely. Sometimes your mind goes to very disturbing places. There's your sins. Yep. So wouldn't it be nice if they wouldn't just like disappear? Not just God wouldn't punish me for them, but they would actually just disappear. They would cease to exist. That'd be nice. Oh, one other thing. Um, Do you know why we're not always conscious of them? Because when when your soul is in your brain, your brain limits the ability of the souls to be aware so you can only be aware really, of like one thing at a time. It's like being in a room with a small window, so you can only like, see a little bit of reality at a time. When the soul departs from the, from the body and therefore is not limited by the brain, the awareness of the soul expands. And guess what you're aware of? All of your sins. So, it's kind of unpleasant. It's, it's very scary. It's
1: like a Petri dish. It's, if they're dormant, but they're still there. You know? They're not dormant. But first... Uh uh, tzaddik is.
0: Are they ever gone? Sadik. Sadik. Yeah. if The person. If, first of all, they can, we can get rid of them, but a tzaddik presumably, which is very simple, love is someone who doesn't sin, so they don't have this problem. Yeah. Where
1: does that come from? Is that the Torah?
0: It's in Jewish mysticism in Kabbalah, okay. which Hasidis partakes of. So. By the way, while we're on the topic, do you know that thieves, generally speaking, do not break into people's houses when the houses are locked? Because (laughs) that's difficult, and nobody likes to do things that are difficult. They generally break into people's houses that are unlocked. So thieves will, like, watch your house and notice that when you leave at a certain time and notice that you don't lock it, or like, that's the house to rob, because it's easy to get away with, right? Yeah? So um, the sins... They're not looking for a hard time, right? So if you're the kind of person who has a strong sense of you are here to serve God and that's, that's how you live your life, even if the sins still exist, you know what they do? They realize that you're maybe not the best person to target because you're, you're kind of like a locked house. And so what happens? They go looking for more vulnerable people. So if you like to protect yourself from your sins, even though they're not going away, having a strong sense of, I should live my life by God's will no matter what because I'm here to serve him, if that becomes really your value system and you live by that, um, you'll see that the, 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 the sins have less of a hold on you. And your, your evil inclination, your temptations will, will become less, not because you become a holy person or anything, but because the sins don't want to waste their energy on, on such a difficult target
1: what's the difference between past sins and your Yitzhahara? like in this context
0: there, know, isn't. In the book, there isn't there Jews are not naturally born with an evil inclination
1: so your Yitzhahara is built every time you do sin she gets bigger
0: and bigger mm-hmm. so you're kind of doomed for failure it's like, well oh, you don't have to listen to your Yitzhah you that, you, that's not doom that's a, that's a choice right I mean Think about many cycles we get into in life, right? If you have a friendship, right, and you something goes bad, and one person offended, the other person offended, they're offended, right? And before you know it, like they're at each other's throats, and like anybody could have broken that cycle at any point in time, right? It's not, you're not it's not fated to be that way. It's a choice to react as opposed to be proactive. That's all. And in a certain sense, that's what the essence of truth is. Yeah. Is, it, is there any belief that, like, to this question that,
1: for example, are like, unlimited, like, it's super big. Like, there are different, like, of, like, perspectives on it, but, like, because they don't really have the, um, the, like, their angle
0: is so, like, so big. Cool. I heard it. Like, because then, like, how, how, is uh, it, how is it, how is it accumulated? Like, how can you, as a, as a child, how
1: can you accumulate so many sins that your yes are is so big, like, that, like, or it doesn't work?
0: I'm afraid to tell you because there's certain things that are just the cost of living for most of us and you're just going to have to deal with the consequences of it. Like there's, it's a weird thing that I think probably started in America. Like as a parent, you feel like, well I can just like set up life so that every child has all the advantages and there's no disadvantages. And that's just not true. Like life is full of disadvantages. Life is full of obstacles. Life is full of things you just have to learn to deal with. And um, if you're wise, you don't try to like figure out how to create the perfect environment for your child. You try to teach the child how to deal with the imperfections of themselves in reality. Okay, so here's the thing. If you are a normal person, okay, you sometimes you do things that are perfectly permitted, they're perfectly fine, there's nothing bad about the thing, but they are entirely indulgent. And when you do something that is entirely indulgent, you enter the realm of sin. It's not a sin, you enter the realm of sin. And it's at that point some 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 of these little little creatures like get inside of you. They infect you, and then they want to reproduce. And so what do they do? Then they convince you to actually sin. And so by the time you're like <laughs> like a you know a ten year old or a twelve year old, what do you have? All these all these they're not your own sins, but because you you've, you've done things that are indulgent, which no one's really faulting you for. You've gotten you know ch- children get childhood infections, right? Well, they get spiritual child infections. There are very special people. Right, that, that Their souls are so vibrant that they come into the world that just doesn't happen to them. Yeah, Moshe Rabbeinu is an example of such a person. Nebuchadnezzar mm-hmm. is an example of such a person. The Bosh Hashem is an example of such a They're very rare. Okay. So then most of us have to deal with the fact that we have this kind of infection inside of us and we have to deal with it. Now, the desire for our own like, basic self-preservation, stuff that's not the evil inclination. That's just being human. The inclination to desire things that are that are that are wrong, um, wrong to other people, wrong to God, and that's it says in Qul. That's not a natural thing for a Jew to have. That's a spiritual infection. Whether you can perfectly, you know, free yourself of that's a different discussion. But yeah, the um, the sins that you've done will go away when you know. There's, there's the um, there's the scapegoat right The but, of course, that doesn't mean you of a person has changed, right? So you just go back to sitting again. I don't know. It's, not, it's, like he, it's like the kid gets dirty, mother washes him off, kid goes back in the mud, mother washes him off, right? I mean, the mud's not accumulating, right? But it's not exactly he's like living a clean lifestyle. Okay. That's the disadvantage of what's going on in the temple, is that it's, it's, it's not, it, doesn't really net, it doesn't really engage so much the person at all. Okay, now we really should move on to what, what we have of Yom Kippur. Good? Okay, so one of the key ideas that Hasidus um, dwells on, it's not an innovation of Hasidus, is that we have an essential bond with Hashem. Um, what does it mean that we have an essential bond with Hashem? It means that the bond, that we, there is some aspect of our bond with Hashem that is not in any way dependent upon the mitzvahs or the sins. Meaning, mitzvahs do not make it stronger, and sins do not make it weaker. Okay. Um, to give you a very simple illustration, if someone is a grave sinner and, the, and, they're, and, the, and let's say in, in Talmudic times, Biblical times, they would be sentenced to death for their sins and they're being taken away to be executed for their sins, do they still have to make a bracha before they take a drink? Do they still have to make a blessing before they drink? The answer is yes. Why? Because they're still Jewish. And that connection is still there. And being part of what being Jewish means is that Hashem wants you to make blessings before you eat. Right? The idea is that there is a, a, a fundamental fact that we don't do mitzvahs in order to be connected. We do mitzvahs because we are connected. And this is the idea that every Jew is obligated to do mitzvahs. Right? Or another way of putting this is that once a person converts, they can't unconvert. There's, an, there's a bond that's absolute, and that's actually what the basis of why we should do mitsis. To use a kind of human analogy, um, we have certain relationships which are inherent. I mentioned this in a previous class. Let's say parents and children. Parents and children are inherent because they literally, the parents brought the child into being. It has nothing to do with how they relate to them, their afterwards. That existential bond is a basis and justification for having a human relationship. In other words, if you were to ask, why should I get along with this, you know, woman who's 20-something years older than me and this man who's 20-something years older than me, the answer is because they're my parents. Whereas most people, if you ask, why should I have a relationship with such a person, it's because we already get along and if we already get along, then it makes sense to like invest in that because it seems like a good thing. So the idea that we have an essential bond with Hashem does not mean that, Torah and mitzvahs are irrelevant, it actually is what gives the Torah and the mitzvahs their, their ultimate justification. But it does mean that if we fail to do the Torah and mitzvahs and we sin, there is, there is some aspect of our being which is not disconnected from Hashem, it's not damaged by that. Okay. Now, are there other parts of our being and relationship that are damaged by sin? Sure. We spoke about tshuva, we spoke about you know, cleaning away the sin. So the normal way that cleaning away the sin works is it's a response to tshuva, as we spoke about yesterday. I take upon myself to live in accordance to God's will. God takes upon himself to correct the damage of my sins. The more I'm invested in my tshuva, the more he's invested in correcting the damage of my, from my sins. I right? think that was the kind of theme we learned about yesterday. Make sense? What happens on Yom Kippur? Yom Kippur is also cleaning away the sins, Kippur is something else entirely. Yom Kippur is a day where Hashem relates to each and every Jew, asterisks, there's a small fine print on each and every Jew we'll come back to, on the basis that we have an essential bond. And on that basis, is there anything that needs to be corrected? In other words, if I get along with my father, does that make him more my father? If I don't get along with my father, does it make him less my father? No. It means I have a bad relationship with my father. The fact that he is my father is unchanging, right? So if my father chooses to relate to me purely on the basis that he is my father and I am his son, right? And that's the only thing that, so to speak, speaks to him at that moment, right? My, my sins against him, my, 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 the negativity between us has been rendered irrelevant. So it's not that we are repairing the damage, but we're exposing, we're revealing a place where the damage never occurred. In other words, we are God, by relating to us this way, is extracting us from the place where the sin has a detrimental effect on our relationship. Okay, so now, who does God do this for? So there's a dispute in the Talmud. One great sage, Rebbe, the compiler of mission, he says God does it for everybody, and the rest of the rabbis, they disagree. He says only for those who return to God. So to use a simple analogy, let's say you have a father and a son, and they had a falling out, and you know, I've, everyone blames the other one, and uh, they haven't spoken in twenty-five years. And the father, one day, he feels a sense: it's my son. At the end of the day, like it doesn't matter. He's my son, and he wants to call his son. He wants to just reach out and call him because he's a son, not because they, not because he forgives, not because like like just that point. This is my son. This is this is the core of me living on beyond me. He feels that. I don't know. Maybe he's getting old, and he's realizing his mortality, and that's prompted it. I don't know whatever the reason is. That obviously wouldn't work for God. And he's about to call his son. Now, if he thinks that his son is just going to slam down the phone, is he going to call his son? He might, right? That's an interesting question, right? But if he knows that if he calls his son, his son on some level wants that call, then he's for sure going to call, right? So the rabbis, the, the, not not Rebbe, not The majority opinion is that God is only going to reveal this and connect to us from this place if he knows that we are interested in repairing the relationship. Not, we've done a deep and profound tshuva. In fact, the wording that they use is very interesting. It doesn't say someone who's done tshuva. just says someone someone who has returned. In other words, the idea is that are you a willing participant? Do you want to come back to God? Are you interested in actually living life on good terms with God, in a real way? And if the answer to that is yes, and I would argue that almost every Jew the answer to that is yes. It's
1: like you want to walk.
0: In. Yeah, because if, they, like, like if you could wave a magic wand, would you, would you try to live in accordance with God's will and, and give up the, 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 the bad stuff in your life? Uh, and you're just not exactly sure how? Okay, so, so you're, then, then you're on the same page, right? And by the way, this is true even if the person is not religious. Because very often the a person is not religious, it's due to their worldview, their understanding, their education, right? So if you adjust within their context to whatever, to whatever degree they're aware of God and to whatever degree they think that God wants them to live in a certain way and to whatever degree that they're aware of Yom Kippur, they probably want to go do what's right, yeah? Now, does that mean everybody? No, there are people who are doing wrong things and they're like, you know what? I don't care. I want to keep doing my, you know, my wrong things, right? But that'd be the exception, not the rule that Hashem is only willing to expose and reveal this kind of very deep truth about His relationship with us to people who are actually interested in making things better. Which means, how deep of a tshuva do you have to do on your Kippur in order to have your sins, well, not removed, but to, for you to be removed from the sins? Not much. Okay? Well, there was a very famous Rabbi named Rabbi Steinzoltz. who um, was known to be quite sharp. Um, so one thing he said in his Kipper' Kippur um, speech to the, the community was that when, it, when a child falls in the mud and the parent comes to wash off the child, what is the most important thing for the child to do? Stay still. Stay still. Do not... Don't mess things up. You moving around is going to make it worse, right? You bring into I have to convince Hashem, and I have to like... I have to like really... I have to bring my sincerity and my intensity and all of my baggage into it and then Hashem will... Like, like, no, let him do his thing. He wants to see each and every one of us as his child, as someone who he intrinsically values and unconditionally feels connected to. And that's it, the whole reason why he wants to assume it is it's in the first place. And if he wants to relate to me that way, right, and I want things to be better, then just let it be. Now, this is where... Usually like your average Kabbalah rabbi like stops on this idea and fleshes this out because it's very nice, it's very beautiful, right? It's very heartwarming. Um, it's also very shallow, let's be honest, right? Because basically what that means is if I am a decent person and I go to Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur is like a magic trick and God just loves me and everything's wonderful. Um, and that seems a bit off, yes? It's too, easy. it's too easy. Because it is too easy. Okay? So there's an interesting thing. In Jewish law, in halacha, you're supposed to confess your sins when you do tshuvah. Okay? That's fine. The rabbis made a list.
1: <laughs> 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 the, rabbis, the rabbis know the people. <laughs>
0: yeah, would you like the list? No, don't, you
1: don't have to have like specifics under the list. No. Like sins that I did between me and others. Like, I don't know, you don't have to remember what those sins were.
0: No. So, you want a list? Mm -hmm. Sins sins that I've sinned before you, under duress and willingly, with the closing of my heart, with not being mindful, with the utterances of my lips, with um, inappropriate sexual conduct, in a revealed way or in a hidden way, with cleverness and deceitfulness, um, with the way I spoke, with the taking advantage of those who are close to me. The list goes on. You're getting the getting theme. In other words, the rabbis made a list of the ways we sin, not the specific deeds, which we're going to come back to why that might be the list. Okay. Um, the, when are you spo- and so the halacha is that you're supposed to do tshuva before Yom Kippur. You should enter Yom Kippur having done tshuva. So when, according to halacha, is the actual real important time where you're supposed to do tshuva and confess your sins the mincha, the afternoon prayer right before Yom Kippur. In other words, you're supposed to confess your sins out of Yom Kippur, the day before Yom Kippur, in the afternoon prayer, so that when you enter Yom Kippur, you've already done tshuva, you've already confessed your sins, and now God is going to atone for you. Yes? Aren't we supposed to always be doing
1: tshuva
0: Yes and no. Yes and no. Okay. Um, First, the yes. Yes. However, the ten days of tshuva are extraly auspicious. That's not even the word, extraly, but I made it up anyway. Um, and then because God, you know, left, washes away our sins on Yom Kippur, it's really important to enter Yom Kippur in a state of chuva. So if you haven't done it by then, you better do it then. And um, you should, you know, maybe you did it and then fell away from it. Um, that's the yes. In which you should always do chuva, but then there's like more auspicious times, more important times. The no is that on a certain level, you know, if if you move past the basic accepting God's authority and trying to live your life with that into some deeper notion of tshuva, then no. Because if you try to do that all the time, you're probably not going to do the other things that God wants from you, right? Like have a family, study Torah. It's kind of hard to do deep spiritual introspective work and figure out what Rashi is saying at the same time, just, you know, (laughs) right? Or make a grocery list, you know, maybe you can do it. I can't. Yes. Why
1: Mithka and not Marav?
0: Because Marav is... Because Jewish holidays start at night. Marav is already on Kippur. Oh, it's already been... Yeah, yeah. It's already on Kippur. Yom Kippur. Yeah. So why... So then according to Jewish law, why do we... Guys, if you look at the Yom Kippur prayers, we confess our sins all the time. There's more and more confessing, 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 confessing. Um, so the, one of the, the reasons in Jewish law is, well, maybe you, maybe you sinned since the last time. You don't want to... You don't want to sin in the middle of Yom Kippur, not to Tshuva, and then, you know, you... you at the end of Yom Kippur, you're in a state of sin, right? You don't want that to happen. So like, you better like, oh, maybe I sinned and do tshuva again, right? But it's a kind of like a certain, there's a certain, I don't want to say falseness, but there's a certain shallowness to that. But if you look in Kabbalah, and this idea is elaborated in, in Hasidus, it's the idea that we're actually, when we're confessing our sins and doing tshuva on Yom Kippur, it's a very different process. It's a totally different thing. And I'm going to illustrate this with uh, I don't know, what was an incident, uh, something, something that happened. There was the fourth Chabad Rebbe, his name was uh, the Rebbe Maharash. That's an acronym for his name, actually. His name was Shmuel. He once, I don't remember if he said or he wrote, I don't remember exactly, um, a, a list. And, and the list starts off like this. It's in Yiddish. As past for a chasid, which means it's fitting for a chassid, and then he said a bunch of things. And each one he said is past for a chasid. It's fitting for a chassid to X. It's fitting for a chassid to Y. And then after that list, he made another list. As passed as far a it's not fitting for a chassid, and they made a list. Many of the things are just the inverse. Some of them are unique. It's like it's fitting for a chassid to study chassidus every day. It's not fitting for a chassid to not study chassidus. It's fitting for a chassid to care about someone else's well-being. It's not fitting for a chassid to only care about themselves. Whatever, like that. Now. What's very important about this list is it doesn't say in order to be a chassid you have to do X, Y, and Z and you can't do A, B, and C. What does it say? So this list is only an effective list for which kind of person? Someone who feels like a chassid. You have to first start with feeling this is who I am and then realize that certain things are fitting or not fitting or appropriate or not appropriate to you. Okay, so what, what, what is Hashem doing Yom Kippur that gets, not doesn't really get rid of the sin, it gets us away from the sin? Is he relates to us that we have this essential bond, we're like, we're like right, that, that is unbreakable no matter what, that he treasures and values our very being, right? Okay. If you can accept that as true, and then you look at how you're living your life, what will you discover if you look at it honestly? Is the way you're living your life fitting for you? Should I get the list out again?
1: (laughs) (laughs) If, if,
0: If I am someone who has infinite, unquestionable worth to God, that God feels a strong identity with, right? And that's why I exist. Does it make sense that I live my life by, in a way that I'm aggressive towards others. Does that fit with who I really am? Mm-hmm. No. So what happens when you realize in a deep way that how you've been living is not fitting for who you really are? That realization, is that comfortable or is that painful?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And what is the result of that pain? Mm-hmm. So I'm going to use a very specific word. It, you shed those things. You 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 things they fall away from you. In other words, that pain actually creates a distance between you and those w- modes of being. And when those modes of being aren't there, the behavior is not going to happen. Okay? Now, broadly speaking, there are five levels of this. Okay. Level number one Okay. is that these ways of behaving don't feel right to me. Level number two, this way of feeling doesn't feel right to me. Level number three, this way of understanding the world doesn't feel right to me. Level number four, these goals, these aims, these drives don't feel right to me. And level number five, Enjoying these things doesn't feel right to me. So let's just take a simple example. Um, let's say a person is deceitful in business. Let's not even ask the question whether they're technically violating the law or halacha. They're just deceitful in business. If they can really accept that God looks at them the way that God looks at us on Yom Kippur, and they, can, they can take that in. When, as they take that in, how does that feel? That feels pretty good, right? But then if they are in that place and then look at their business practices. How does that feel? Painful, which is why they probably don't wanna look at their business practices where they're in that state, right? Kind of guts to do that. You wanna just kind of stay in that little, that little bubble of bliss. But if you do, and you take a good look, it doesn't feel like that's the right way for you to live. And if it really, that, that pain really sinks in, it's not gonna be that hard for you going forward to actually not be deceitful in business. Now we can go. I'm going to go to the end. Why are people deceitful in business? Why do people want more money? What?
1: Could
0: be reason. Usually, it's not. Why do people want want more money? So
1: they're not satisfied with they
0: have. Okay, but I've been not satisfied with they had, and therefore I want to learn more Torah or I want to help more people. The, the, the not satisfied with you have is it part of the human condition? It's not an inherently bad thing. Selfish. Too vague.
1: More
0: power. I want something more concrete. I, I I want one of the things that's very important about yom kippur is that yom kippur only works when you get very specific. Ye-tahara. I, for instance, have all yetera, but like more money is not my thing. I'm just honest. Like like you know like like if if I can pay my bills, I'll be fine. Like I'm really not like it's not my thing. Is there
1: thing. God? Is there security?
0: When, uh, one of two things. Either it's the money itself, okay? And we're going to set that aside because that's a little bit weird. Or it's what the money gets them. What are some of the things that the money gets them? Power. Power. Let's go with that. So they enjoy power. And because they enjoy power or social status or luxury. So now what would be the highest level of Yom kippur? where I feel like I am Hashem's treasured child and it doesn't feel right to me that I enjoy power. I, not money, I don't enjoy, it doesn't feel right that I enjoy power. It doesn't feel right that I enjoy social status. It doesn't feel right that I enjoy luxury. Maybe it doesn't even feel right that I enjoy just the mundane aspects of life when they're devoid of God's presence. Now, if I get to that place, do I even have to worry about not being deceitful in my business? Like so you see like it's the behavior that could feel off. That's like the low end. And the high end is the underlying things that speak to me, that underline my drives, that underline the way I understand the world, that underline my emotions, that underline what I consider to be acceptable ways of behaving in the world.
1: Which will also take away
0: that from happening in the future. Right. right. Now what' are second. the way it works though is it goes it goes up. So you have to start with it feels wrong. It doesn't feel right. Not God is not it doesn't feel right doesn't feel like I'm being... It's not fitting for me to be a deceitful business. That's the, that way of being is like, it's not me. Okay, but then you would have to go... Then you would go a step up to what are the emotions that lead to that? What is the worldview that underlies that? What are the drives that underlie it? And ultimately, what is the thing that really speaks to you, that touches you, that you enjoy, that, that gives all of that legitimacy? And the highest form of Yom Kippur is where the person walks out of Yom Kippur and the only thing that they find pleasure in, the only thing that speaks to them is the relationship with God, and how that's manifest in life. Now, do most of us achieve that level of Yom Kippur? Most of us will be lucky if we are able to use our Yom Kippur to at least one area of our life shed away. Right? We can do it like one area. So now, what happened? This idea went from being very like, so beautiful and so nice, and it is, it's beautiful, it's nice, but but there's a flip side to it. If, If I take that truth that Hashem looks at me as a person who sin has no part of my being, and I can absorb that, and then I look honestly at at how I live my life on all those different levels, and again, you start with the lower levels and work your way up, then the degree to the pleasure and and, and joy I feel and that's how God looks at me, I get an equal amount of pain by by the inconsistency of my ways of living from who I really am. And that, so it's a a totally different kind of a tshuva process. It's a totally different kind of kapara process, okay? It's not like the normal tshuva, and it's not like the normal kohar. It's not like I really want to connect to God and I want to change my way so so that I connect to God and I hope that God will remove the sins to restore the relationship. This is the opposite. I feel about myself, or I believe about myself, the way same way God looks at me and therefore, certain things just don't fit right. They don't fit, and it hurts me that I have those things. And that pain, when expressed in the confessional prayer, frees the person of that. And that's hard work. And like I said, if we can do that authentically in one small area of imkippur, we've accomplished a lot. Yes. Okay.
1: So this list. What, what did you title this list? The five, oh,
0: the, the five. Oh, these are the five levels in which um, we we can shed our inappropriate or lack of appropriate ways of being. In other words, there's the way we behave, there's the way we feel, there's the way we make sense of the world, there's what drives us, mm-hmm. and there's what what we enjoy that underlies everything.
1: Okay, so to that point, for example, I've had goals or aims and that were not sinful or that were service to a community but they didn't feel right because I still felt out of alignment with God, even though that they were of good service, right? Even though that they had good intentions. So couldn't this all apply even if you're doing... What you feel to be good But you could still be Out of alignment with God Because you are not In alignment with the will And purpose of what God Has for your life Well
0: that's actually Going to be true On levels two through That's going to be true On levels two through five Okay If it's still about Am I doing the right thing Then that's my modes of behavior Right So like Someone who's like Perfectly spiritually In sync with everything Mm -hmm. When they finish the Marv service, like, they're done with that. Like, their way they relate to how they should behave in the world is in accordance with who they really are. But now they, now they have to deal with a deeper level, which is how they feel about things.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then they have to go deeper and deeper. Most of us, like I'm saying, like, you know, it's just a little more, you have to kind of... And as a personal recommendation, focus on the thing that's actually the easiest thing to really change because there's a general rule in in growth, which is that success breeds success. So if you take all of the Yom Kippur to a place that seems very daunting to face in your life, it's probably going to be a waste of Yom Kippur. I don't mean it's a waste of Yom Kippur, it's a mitzvah and everything else, but this, this opportunity won't be utilized. But if you take it to the thing that you're really on the cusp of, Yom Kippur is a good time to kind of get you over that hump. And you, often if you do that, you'll find it has, it has positive spiritual effects and other things. And so you can really think of, rather than you go through the list of the, all the confessional prayers, you think, like, I have to, I have to mean all of them. The, uh, the, the Baal Shanto said something very interesting, which is that everything a person sees and everything a person hears is an instruction how to serve God. Yeah? And like many nice ideas, it's very nice until you actually think about what that means. There's a water bottle here, right? You all see it? What is that telling you about how you should serve God? There's a book here. Do you see that? That's telling you, what does that tell you about how to serve God, right? I'm wearing a suit that's dark gray. What is that telling you about how to serve God? Right? I've been using my left hand to point these. Do you see like you're going to go crazy if you do that, right? You can't function. So what did the Baal Shem intend for us? If everything is an instruction for how to serve God, then that means... There's always something that you can use to be be instructed to be a guide to serve God, right? Which one should you pick? Probably the one that stands out the most, that strikes you. That's probably the one you start with. So in a similar way, if we have a whole list of the confessional prayers, right? You don't have to take my advice, but if you try to make every single thing really sincere and really meaningful, there's an an expression... um, in, in the, the Talmud Fastum like Fast, you grab too much, you wouldn't grab anything. Right? Um, or, or the way the Rebbe Rashab, the Fifth Chabad Rebbe put it, is that someone who someone who's holding by everything is holding by nothing. If you if you're but if you say, look, okay, there's all this stuff, what jumps out at me as something that really bothers me seems really attainable, and dwelling on how that is not consistent with who I am as the way God sees me. And if that's where you kind of anchor your yom kippur around that, whatever that is, that mode of behavior, whatever it is, chances are you're going to actually have a yom kippur that actually has lasting effects afterwards. So you don't come back to being the exact same place you were after yom kippur that you were before yom kippur. Yeah. I'm sorry. This is any validity because It's
1: like a trend, I guess, that before yom kippur, like everyone goes and apologizes. And ah, like, I was like, going to
0: talk wrong. about that, and I'd forgotten. Thank you for reminding me. So, in the code of Jewish law, it does say that Yom Kippur is not effective for sins against other people. And therefore, you must make amends to other people. And that actually the laws of what you require required to do to make amends for other people are found in the laws of Yom Kippur for that reason. Therefore, you should make sure to make amends with people you have hurt. If you are asking my opinion, you should not go around asking everybody to forgive you and apologizing to everybody you know. And the reason is as follows. Number one if you don't remember hurting me, why are you assuming that I am carrying around a grudge and hurt by you? That's impugning every person you know because it's forbidden to hold a grudge. Now, again, if you have reason to think that you've hurt me, that's different, but you don't, you can't I don't, I don't remember doing anything. Okay, number two, the requirement to make amends is to sincerely apologize from a place of humility and a place of concern for their well-being which you can't do if you're going around asking everybody for forgiveness and saying if I hurt you I'm gonna apologize right There's, And think about being on the receiving end of those things right especially if it's sent like as you know like a, a like a message on your instagram or something it really doesn't feel sincere now the exception to this rule is the people that you are extremely close to in your life and have ongoing relationships with a spouse children parents siblings very close friends that you interact with on an ongoing basis um, or that maybe you, you know, that that are really part of your life, there, there really is a concern that when people are close, because people are different, we do hurt each other. And because we're close, we're not always comfortable bringing it up. And it is appropriate for a spouse to go to their spouse or to their children, parents to go to their children, to go to their parents and say... I'm not sure if, I I don't remember anything, but it's possible over the course of the year I did something that hurt, and if it is, I, 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 and and this you can actually do really sincerely, because you have a relationship, and you care, and you know it's quite possible they did, and it's quite possible they don't, and if there is, I want to apologize, if you want to talk about it, I'm here to talk about, like, that is something to do, but like, that's not a list of of 50 people, you see what I'm saying? And yeah, like, you know, call your parents, and say, like, you know, I you know there might be stuff between us that I'm not aware of and, and, and I, I, I want to, like, you know, I want to apologize and I want to make that better and, like, I'm open to talking about it and make that overture. Yeah, that's something to do before you Kippur. If you're married, do that with your spouse. If you have children that are of the age where that's appropriate in a way that doesn't undermine the parental authority relationship, then that should also be done, for sure. I think I'd rather slaughter a chicken. What? <laughs> but, and the slaughtering the chicken does not substitute for this. At all.
1: Okay. It just, it sounds,
0: it sounds, it's hard. Yom Kippur sorry. is hard. hard. Okay. The Hasidic. And, okay. So that, that's the answer to that. Like, now, are there people who would probably disagree with me? Of course there are people who disagree with You, you ask my opinions. You got my opinion. Um, so just getting back to the main topic. So what we have now is that Hashem, as long as we want to improve our relationship with Him, He looks at us and shows our soul in a way that we can tap into how much he cares for us and values us regardless of what we've ever done. It just, there's a core element of connection doesn't matter. And the more that, we, that sinks in, the better we feel about ourselves, but then we turn and look at how we've been living our lives, we feel those things just don't fit and that pain helps us disassociate, disconnect, and shed those parts of our life. And that can be done on many, many, many levels. Okay? And even someone who's a spiritual giant still has Yom Kippur on their level. Okay. but the thing is if you take it into the particulars okay um, and, and I want to point out Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah are not the same thing what was Rosh Hashanah about? Crowning, Crowning Hashem Rosh Hashanah is about the simple question do I want to serve God and does God want me to serve Him? that's it do not be do not get in specific not get in details it's about that core basic issue and if I don't want do I want to be able to want it? right This we spoke about and Yom Kippur is like the opposite it's we're connected, this doesn't fit in my life, and do I, do I recognize how much it doesn't fit? That I can really let go of it. And don't make your, own, and you're actually forbidden from mentioning sins on Rosh Hashanah. The, the halachic reason is so that we don't cause harsh judgment, and the, 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 the more Kabbalistic and Hasidic reason is because it's not about sins, it's about the, that fundamental desire. So don't mix up your Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur.
1: But is it there a space between the shofar blows to confess silently? It does say
0: to confess silently. But that's There's not, different traditions of what that means. In the Chabad tradition, this is instruction all exclusively to the person who's blowing the shofar. And it is... And the confession there is not a confession of sin. It's being open with how much you you truly desire God. And there's different traditions as to what that would mean. Um, but that, that's how that's understood. Um, Yeah, but Yeah, but you're not you're not you're not allowed to mention sins on on. we don't even foods that have the same numerical value in Hebrew as sin (laughs) like nuts what? what? We don't mention that's on Rosh Hashanah we don't say Alchet. The Alchet is Yom Kippur so don't mix these up Rosh Hashanah is do I want to serve him does he want me to serve him that's what Rosh Hashanah is about Yom Kippur is we have this essential bond and I feel that and that fills me with joy on the one hand and it pains me when I look at the parts of my life that don't fit with that, and that pain doesn't—it helps me separate from those things, that I come out of Yom Kippur slightly more in tune with who I truly am inside. So there's very different things, you know. Don't mix them up.
1: We can't have nuts on Rosh Hashanah.
0: The custom is not to eat nuts on Rosh Hashanah because the Hebrew word for nuts is the same numerical value as sin. Also, apparently, nuts—if you eat them. They make it hard to say a lot of words. Oh,
1: interesting.
0: Yeah. Yes, uh, also really The nuts do something to like the amount of saliva you have in your in your mouth and Rosh Hashanah, you're say, you're in shul speaking a lot. There's a lot of words to say. And you don't want to get like a dry mouth and you can't be able to so there's two reasons. I mean that
1: you can just drink water. Well
0: actually you can't just drink water because once at a certain point in the prayer you can't drink anymore. Until Yeah. From the from the Baruch Sha'amar prayer until <laughs> after Kiddush, you cannot drink. On <laughs> No, period. On uh, Shabbos also. What? Yeah, yeah, So. I mean, if it's a medical reason, then it's different. But if it's just you're thirsty, then no. So, yeah. It's a good idea to keep that in mind. All right. We have one of these left, right? So we have Sukkos. These were all... No, we have two Q&As. But um, these are all very heavy, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, that's a Sukkos.
0: Sukkos is um, the joyous one. And mm-hmm. so I'm just going to give you a little quick prelude. Sukkos is that all of this stuff, which is heavy, is under fundamental. It's all positive, right? And so in Sukkos, we're going to shift and focus purely on the positivity that's inherent in all of this. So everything in Sukkos is just focusing on the positive things that come out of Rosh Hashanah, the 10 days of Chuva, and Yom Kippur. That's why I've spent so much time on those and only one time on took one took this. If we had more I would, you know instead. Good? Thanks.